1: And this goes back to science. It goes back to the development of medicine. The National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health that I run, our job is to help coordinate science and education efforts for disaster health and public
0: health. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly. And this is your host, Todd DeVospeke. And this week we're talking about, well, infectious disease and disaster medicine in general. Uh, it's interesting to see that we're starting to have more conversations about what the role of emergency management is during a disaster such as a you know, H1N1 outbreak or an Ebola issue or something along those lines. And I think that you're going to start seeing more and more conversations this way because disasters or emergencies such as these outbreaks really are starting to use more resources. And as emergency managers, as you know, we talked about this before, we collaborate between agencies and we are, I think, the binding agent between them. And this week we're talking to Dr. Thomas Kirsch, who is the director of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, and also a professor at the Military Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. He's a board-certified emergency physician and expert in disaster medicine and science and austere medicine and healthcare management. So I'm excited to have uh, Dr. Kirsch on, uh, talk to him, and I hope that you'd like him to. Let's get into the interview. Dr. Kirsch, welcome to Ian Weekly.
1: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: So, disaster medicine is kind of uh, one of those things I've always been interested in. So, Give you a little background on myself, so then some of the listeners might not know this, but I was a Navy corpsman, um, and that's kind of how I got my started into emergency management as well. So, austere medicine was one of the things that we uh, we really kind of uh, focused on, and that kind of rolls into disaster medicine. How did you get involved um, with disaster medicine?
1: Uh, it's a long, tortuous story. Um... But my first exposure to disaster was when I was in high school in Omaha, Nebraska. There was a big tornado that hit the city, and and the principal gave us the option of either coming to class or going and helping the Red Cross. So being the pro-skipper I was in high school, I immediately chose to go volunteer for the Red Cross for a few days, responding to a tornado. So that was the very first thing. Then when I was in medical school, after medical school, I spent a summer working in a refugee camp in Thailand, and my interest was always in kind of humanitarian and disaster work. So I got a degree in public health and I um, started doing a lot of work globally and then domestically in disaster response, just kind of ad hoc over the years until I developed a full career in it.
0: What exactly is, in today's definition, I suppose, what what exactly is disaster medicine and and how is that field growing?
1: Well, there's all kinds of definitions of that. I mean, so if you look at the you know, actual delivery of clinical care in disasters, like you mentioned, it's very similar to the concept of austere medicine where you're trying to provide health care in a um, very resource-constrained environment and you're having to adapt to unusual standards to work under and such. And so that's a very complicated ethical and logistical question. At the our spectrum of that disaster medicine is, for example, preparing our health system for catastrophes or getting the healthcare network ready for a disaster. So it it ranges everything from delivering care to an individual patient to a bigger public health and health aspect of managing whole systems so that we can better care for patients in the event of a catastrophe or disaster.
0: So when you talk to the the, the guy in the street, you ask him about the you know. What do they mean by uh public health they they think of uh maybe the c d c or the w h o or along those lines how How does that enter into say like disaster um response in in the United States compared to disaster response um globally?
1: Well so the the issues are the same um in regard you know public health is is more than just giving immunizations it's about clean water and safe shelters and and good food and nutrition and access to healthcare there's a lot of aspects to it and although in a humanitarian emergency in a country that doesn't have a de- really developed a country or economy there's a much greater need to have shelter and water and all that stuff we do the same thing here in the US we You know, when a hurricane occurs, people evacuate. They have to go live in a shelter. Therefore, they have to have adequate bed space. They have to be fed. They have to have toilets. They have to have all of those things. So there's different degrees of that. But the public health side of disasters is really, even in the U.S. or around the world, is more important than the actual clinical, the medical side of disasters, because it's those basic things of food, water, shelter, safety, and all of that stuff. And so... So those issues are paramount, and, and, and where our government focuses on, for the most part, is, is the public health side.
0: So in, in the military, um, we have what we call medical intelligence, which is looking at where we're going, uh, what diseases that could possibly be there, how do we give the right uh, shots and whatnot to our troops before we send them into those to those areas. Do you think that we should be looking um, with medical intelligence the same way here in the states?
1: Um, So, yes, and, and I think we do that pretty well. You know, we're very, our disaster management response is very devolved. It starts at the local level, then the state level, and the regional level, and the feds only come in later. And so most of that kind of medical intelligence level stuff is left up to local and state governments. Who are responsible for the individual populations a city has to know their people and what their needs are and all of that stuff at at the higher level from the federal side there's quite a bit of, of medical intelligence that takes place but it's at a much bigger level in in dealing with large populations logistics and, and stuff at a higher level so it's a little bit different approach than than the doD
0: well, right, and, and I guess my comparison is we're looking at like a couple of years ago when we had the, uh, uh, the swine flu scare, um, where, and, and it was, I guess, realistically a pandemic. Um, and, you know, we're, we're having regular meetings of deciding whether we're going to have school or not or, or, or should we talk about, you know, suspending some uh, public uh, events, uh, especially here uh, in California where we had a couple of cases. And and I think that's what I'm talking about as far as, like, how do we as emergency managers and decision makers during a crisis like that, how do we interact with, say, somebody in that, um, you know, medical intelligence side of things?
1: Well, that's a good question. Um, Particularly when it comes to the infectious disease issues, there's a very kind of delicate balance between the management community, which is responsible for doing everything, and the public health and health expertise whose job is to identify risks and to, you know, make recommendations how to respond. <laughs> but it's not their job to implement. And so that balance between the management side, where you have to deal with the truce on the ground, and the and the expertise side is, is a difficult balance that has to kind of be approached at the individual level. Um, and so the experts... All they can provide is data that the managers act
0: on. So when we're we're looking at as emergency managers, we're in the room with the um, you know the the public health officials um, making looking to make decisions, uh, looking to their expertise, and, and and in some cases I think that where we fail is that we don't have a great relationship with public health, and in some cases public health kind of does their own thing on a daily basis. Emergency management does their own thing on a daily basis. There's not a lot of uh, of inter collaboration until something goes down, and then uh, then it's we're trying to get to each know each other's personalities and whatnot during the disaster. What can we do better to integrate public health and emergency management on, on a regular basis?
1: Well, I mean that's a huge issue. Um, that is. Difficult to overcome there because there are kind of two different camps and it, it gets further divided. There's, you know, emergency management and then there's the public health who are government public health and then there's academia who are the, you know, serious hardcore technical experts and those divisions and silos are, are very difficult to break down. Um, but I think that it takes, you have to work together in advance. It's like in it, you know, it's like all of us in disaster management. It's who you have on your Rolodex who you reach out to. And so engaging those groups early on, um, whether it's in the planning phase or particularly during the exercise phase, I think is critically important. Um and I know personally because I've been an academic dweeb most of my life, but I've also been on the response side. Um there the academicians for the most part are are eager to be involved in, in these types of activities. And there are a lot of centers scattered around the country and a lot of individuals who um, want to be involved. And so reaching out to the both the, the state public health officials and to local universities who do disaster-related things and working with them early is the best way to do that. Um, and so I recommend that. There's been some exercises that have been conducted by the um, NIH to do just that, there was a recent exercise in Tucson that brought together uh, academia public health officials and and uh emergency managers and used a chemical release based scenario from a train derailment um, which developed all kinds of robust discussions in the room and literally everyone sitting there was going, "Wow, you know, I wish I'd met you before, and I wish we had done this before and so it's that early engagement that's critical, I think
0: I think it's interesting because even when you and, and I did kind of like a straw poll um, amongst emergency managers, and you know, asked them what they knew about you know disaster medicine, disaster health medicine, you know, and 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 their role. And surprisingly, a large number were like, hmm, you know, we know it exists, but we're not exactly sure how to engage, you know. And I think that's the big question: is like, outside of just picking up the phone and calling up the uh, public, the local public health official or or like you guys, like how do we engage? How, what, what do you think the first step for the emergency manager should be to to start that relationship with their local uh, public health guy or the disaster uh, medicine group in general?
1: Um, well, again, I think it's in the planning phase. And, and, you know, you we do that. You guys do that. You, you have, uh, when you're doing your planning, you have to plan your shelters. You have to plan how many porta-potties. You have to do all that stuff. And, and that process should, you should be engaging the state public health people who are responsible for those things. So I think that's phase one. When you get into the, the unique events that there are relatively few people have expertise in it, and whether that's a biologic event or a chemical event, um or a nuke event, engaging experts in those areas early you know, if there's some university dude who's the rad nuke expert of the universe who happens to, you know, be in your town, then engaging that person in the planning process and planning exercises and conducting exercises is a great way to develop those relations first. Because it's really in in the unique events that we all talk about, but we never actually see, thank God, um, there's relatively few people who have expertise out there. Even in the military, You know, there's specific rad nuke units made up of people who just have expertise in that. And we all turn to them if something happens and call them in. So in the, in the DOD and the military, those relationships are established by rules. In the community, those relationships should be established early and bringing them into the planning, the exercise process. I think it's critically important because we just don't, no one out there knows enough details about everything to make the correct decisions. So engaging those experts is important.
0: So to learn from, from past mistakes, what do emergency managers do wrong when it comes to public health and disaster medicine issues?
1: <laughs> well, good question. Um, you know, I, I don't know how to count, capture that in a, a big picture because I think from the other side of the public health person, the doctor, the academician. Um, I've been in a number of events where I acted as a public health advisor for the American Red Cross after Katrina and after 9-11 um, and then work clinically in Haiti and did work in Liberia during the both. Um, and I did so in all of those as the technical expert, not the manager. I found that there was a ramping up process of, of each, each side kind of has to establish their credibility to each other. So people had to say, okay, fine, you know, Dr. Kirsch is reasonable. He seems to know what he's talking about. And that took time to do that. And, and, and having, you know, the preset rollbacks and the preset connections, you cut through all that The uh, Um, but the, that process in those, each of those episodes that I worked in, was really relatively quick, Um and maybe it's because the managers that I worked with were really profoundly open and wonderful, or maybe I know how to speak management language. I don't know what it was, but but once that relationship was established, and we we had a trusting relationship, and we could go forward, and and that took, depending on the event, hours to a couple of days, um, and so I you know I don't know how to say that it, it once you have created that group-working mentality and recognize each other's expertise, that validity and utility. Um, things went pretty well, and the managers were very, you know, they'd come to me and ask specific types of questions, and I'd answer those questions, and I'd come to them and say, I'm not really sure about X, Y, and Z, and they'd fill me in on the details. It's just a matter of building those relationships, um, and that's highly dependent on on personalities Is the problem.
0: Yeah, it's always a a personality issue when it comes to anything that we do. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about, well, Ebola.
1: Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking allowing emergency communication even when networks are down, augmented reality and real-time translation we believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive
0: welcome back from that quick break and uh, you know thank you for for listening and, and please reach out to the sponsors because without them we can bring you this uh, quality product so tom you mentioned ebola and, and i'm going to kind of preface this a little bit so when we when it comes to public health disasters, you know, it's really kind of abstract to a lot of emergency managers. And so, when we want to drill it, you know, we use like the CDC's um, zombie, uh, you know, uh, event that they created, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of fun, right? Yeah, and, and I think we can all get it behind that with the movies and whatnot. So, but we have had some real medical outbreaks, and Ebola was one of them, which kind of scared a lot of people. You know, when we brought the guy back from. Um, before, it was Liberia, right? When we brought him back. And, uh, Liberia. Yeah. And uh, everybody was look afraid of that. What, if we don't have this here necessarily yet, um, thank God, but what would be like the big medical outbreak where which scares you that keeps you up at night?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's the big outbreak that we're all scared about. And so Ebola horrible disease and all that stuff, but it's you know, it's only transmitted by touch. Um it's the respiratory transmitted disease. And so that's why everyone freaks out every year over flu. And people think, like, oh flu is nothing. Well you know flu killed sixty thousand people last year in the US like Yeah. Um and so any respiratory transmitted illness is very hard to contain. And if you have a respiratory transit illness like a flu virus, an influenza virus, that has a high lethality. You know, the current influenza virus kills one in 10,000, I don't know what the number is, one in a thousand. Um, if you have one that kills one in a hundred, or one in ten, then you have a pandemic that will literally kill millions of people. And that's... The scenario that all emergency managers, all planners, all medical types—you know—that's the one that really scares us the most um, and keeps us up at night.
0: So I read the the book, The Great Influenza, nineteen eighteen, and I found it amazing that—and that's hindsight twenty twenty—but I found it amazing that there was actually this pattern going on prior to the outbreak, Uh, and and. You know, there were there, and the time is really interesting. If you guys have not read that book, read it. The medical profession um, was, I want, I would like to say, my words, not not theirs. It was like, almost like a secondary to profession. It wasn't like what it is today, where, with respect to the medical industry, and, and there were, um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, even at Harvard at the time, uh, they didn't even do real clinical uh, tests and stuff like this when you were going to medical school. So that's in the book. It's kind of interesting. But that being said. There's a few people that really understood what was going on, and but the messages necessarily weren't being, um, especially by the military, because we're ramping up for war, um, wasn't being uh, heated. Are, are we? And I hope we are. Are we better off now with our messaging and this conversation? Because it seems like as much as we do as public health and emergency managers to talk to the public about getting your flu shot or or things like this, it's it doesn't seem to be heated. Are, are we? Are we any better off than we were in nineteen eighteen?
1: Oh yeah, way way better off. Um you know, you're right, it <clears throat> I don't want to digress in history, but medicine, frankly, at the turn of the century, we were still pretty much witch doctors. It was really only in the early nineteenth twentieth century, early nineteen hundreds that the medical profession really started using evidence and science and started studying what they're doing and improving
0: it. We've made we've
1: made tremendous gains since then. And the same is true in the, in the federal government side and the, and the planning and preparedness side. We devote as a, as a nation, but also as healthcare workers and public health workers, a ton of effort to controlling infectious disease. You know, the whole Center for Disease Control, the whole National Institute of you know, Infectious Diseases, the, the BARDA process, um, in the federal government for funding vaccine development and interventions for outbreaks and stuff, there is a lot of work that goes into that now. And, and this goes back to science. It goes back to the development of medicine. The National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health that I run, our job is to help coordinate science and education efforts for disaster health and public health. And doing evidence-based interventions into disasters, as well as evidence-based interventions into preparedness, is how we're going to make our country the safest that we can be. And I, and I think we've done a tremendous job of that in the last certainly the last hundred years since the influenza outbreak. But in the last, you know thirty years, ever since Katrina and nine eleven and some of the big events that occurred in the in the past thirty years, the government's ability to respond to disaster I personally feel has gotten quite a lot better at the federal level, but also even at the local and state level. I think there's been a great deal of effort. So I'm I'm relatively hopeful about our ability to intervene in these events.
0: And I am, too, and, and I know that uh, on the medical side that we're doing a great job. I'm just thinking on the, uh, on the public side, you know, with with our education programs and stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it seems yeah. to be that they people tend to ignore things until it's too late. Uh, and I'm trying to think, how do we do a better – I mean, it's even a regular preparedness, right? I mean, like, how do you have a kit? You know, I mean – you know, I, you go to the doctors, and they're like, "Here's your flu shot." And more people, you know, uh, don't take it than take it. You know, so how do we do a better job of of educating the public on on the importance of, of prevention? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. Well, particularly for for these biologic events, you know, the the hysteria that occurred with Ebola, which frankly was le- led by a bunch of politicians who wanted to you know, shut off all plane travel and close the borders and lock up the healthcare workers who responding. You know, they they basically arrested a nurse and kept her against her will in New Jersey. When we have politicians that do misleading things and stuff and create panic among the population, it makes it difficult for public health and health workers to get out the real information that's important. Wash your hands, social distancing, all of those things that are actually critical to stopping the spread of an infectious disease or responding to any disaster get drowned out by the unfortunate misrepresentation, misleading comments made by certain news outlets and politicians. And that's, that's really hard. It's hard for the, you know, public health types and health types to get the message, the real messages out that people need to know when they're battered by these other things. But we have to keep working on it. It's critical for, you know, a podcast like this. And however we can reach the population to help them understand how to keep themselves safe after a disaster or during an event like this is critically important for everybody's to help.
0: Yeah, I agree. So for the average emergency manager out there, right, that's the average guy like me who's uh, trying to always learn more. How do uh, we learn more about our role in, in public health and in disaster medicine?
1: Well, again, the only thing I can do is encourage collaboration at a local level for everybody. And I know that's hard because, you know, you're the only emergency manager there and there's only one public health dude out there who's working. And so um, having some kind of relationship before the event and being able to go into the event hand-in-hand with someone who's critically important. You know, you guys do a great job of preparing for, all you know, the whole all-hazards thing. And again, you know, none of us can be expert. I am a physician, I'm an emergency physician, but I don't know squat about dealing with radiation stuff. And I have to go read that stuff and I have to study that stuff. And I do. And so as emergency managers, at least having awareness of each of the core all hazards or hazards out there, you know, you have to have awareness, but you then have to have a source that you can turn to that you in an event or something happens that you can get the right kind of information to act on it. And whether that's some guy at a university who happens to be the world expert on whatever it is, on this chemical or that new thing, or whether that's a book or whether that's going to the um, different websites that are available, like the National Library of Medicine has a a number of web links for different data. There's there's REM and there's chem websites out there. Um, You have to have the ability to ramp up your own brain In whatever event occurs that, that we're not used to. We're all used to like preparing for the fires and we're ready for the floods and we all have our own local events that occur and we're, you know, everyone's good at those. It's those unusual weird ones that you have to have some playbook in the background, some source of knowledge that will allow you to respond properly. So I can, you know, I can only recommend that you at least know where those sources are before an event so that you can access them quickly, whether it's a living person or a website or a book whatever it is, you need to have access to that information.
0: Doc, here's a question for you. What book, books or publications do you recommend to the people uh, in emergency management that might be interested more in this, uh, in this field?
1: Well, you know, frankly, I, I personally think that the CDC website has a ton of good stuff. Um, on specific events, you know, like if you go look up um, chemical events, and uh, anticholinergics or whatever you want. There's specific details that are quite useful. So the, the CDC site is pretty robust, pretty well laid out, and can give you a lot of uh, topical-specific stuff. Um, again, the National Library of Medicine has this resource called the uh, National Disaster Resources. I'd have to look. You guys can look at the link and provide it, but but it's got a little bit more medically and clinically related stuff. There are specific apps that are useful. and I mentioned REM, which is R-E-M-M, and CHEM, which is C-H-E-M-M, which are, are apps that are directed at the health aspects of radiologic and chemical events. They're a little bit dense, the apps. Um, they're a little bit hard to navigate. But there's pretty good stuff on there. There's a lot of links. It, so I would recommend you go to those early. So, you know what they're like before an event occurs, so you don't have to spend hours digging through them. Um, I, you know, I, and I gotta be honest with you, books and textbooks, they're a pain in the butt, and they, they're hard to carry around. And so, I don't recommend those much anymore. For really basic, dumb stuff, at least to introduce yourself to whatever the event is, even though it's an informed pandemic. I hate to say it, but I go to Wiki. Can I at least read the article on whatever it is? And it gives you a general idea of what's out there. Um, it also usually provides links and provides you with, with more details where you can go look up the more specific recommendations. So that's kind of how I would start. Love it.
0: All right. If you could talk to all the emergency managers at one time in the world, what would you tell them? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, keep the world safe for small children and puppies <laughs> 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 kind of a broad question <laughs> uh, you know I again, speaking from my aspect, which is a health and a public health guy you gotta you have to understand our universe as much as we have to understand yours and. And that may be pain-in the- butt things like going to your local health department and sitting in on one of their planning meetings or all of that stuff. But you just have to we all have to, in these multi-disciplinary, complex things that we do with disaster planning and response, we have to at least have some knowledge of each other's world so that when the kimchi hits the fan, you know we are much more efficient in our ability to coordinate across all these different groups. And so, whether that's reading books, or going online and looking at the CDC website, or or going to meetings, or just dropping an email to somebody, I, I just can't overemphasize how important that is. And and it, and during an event, if you have the time in the EOC to bop over to the table of the public health department, and say, hey, I just want to introduce myself. You know, I'm so and so. You know, those kind of things are critical too, because. Um, There's no one person out there who has a brain big enough for all the stuff that has to occur during a disaster response. We all have to rely on each other's brains. And so creating those connections is the only way we can create a big enough brain to do what's right for the people who are affected by disasters. So that's all I can say.
0: You're absolutely right. Okay, so last question for you. What's the most interesting... Case that you responded to or event,
1: <laughs> uh, and there, there, I've gone to quite a few. I usually go as a researcher, and so I'm very distant from the need of the matter. The ones that I've responded to where I was involved in the mess was the Liberia, the Ebola, the um, Trina, 9/11. Um, I worked in some refugee camps. Flood in Pakistan. Hmm. You know, they're all. Um, every event is is different. Um, the, the most difficult ones for me. I mean, Haiti was the most difficult to okay, reflect because I was providing clinical care in a horrible setting. Right, right. Um, and so that was beyond the pale as far as the psychic impact. The more interesting one as far as interest was 9-11, I guess, where I was acting as the main health, public health representative for the Red Cross, the EOC and, and the different substations responding. So I, I got to see that event from both the very high level from the, the ESC on the pier all the way down to the local firehouse where we were coordinating safety aspects for the firefighters and the responders in the pile. Um, so that one, from a intellectual point of view, because I got to see the workings at all different levels, I think was the most interesting of all of them. Yeah,
0: yeah I was. I, I think of, was my experience. I liked medicine when I was in the field, and uh, I always liked the cases that challenged me uh, mentally more than just the, the physical response to to the trauma or whatnot. I, that's, that's that's what always got me uh, going in the morning. So Tom, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And, and I hope that what we get out of this is that we have a better understanding of what our partners in disaster medicine do uh, and how we can have a better relationship before we have a disaster uh, with our, our local um, public health and disaster medicine people. Uh, that's That was the goal of, of this uh, event. So how can people find more information about you and your organization?
1: So um, I'm the director of the National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health. It's uh, an interagency center which is federally based, and our job is is to do evidence-based, you know, to make sure that we do the right things based on the evidence. And so we have a website, um, but if you just search National Center for Disaster Medicine and Public Health, or since even I can't say that, NCDMPH, NCDMPH, on Google it pops up right away. And that'll give you an idea of the scope of the work that we're doing and, and all the projects we're working on.
0: And we'll have that link in, in our show notes. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been very interesting. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player. And also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. If you're looking for more information and more emergency management type podcast, check out sitchradio.com because there's a full laundry list over there. See you next week.